Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the movie Jurassic Park, perhaps the most famous line is that nature will find a way. It might be just as accurately said today that technology will find a way. Think about where we are. Fear of Facebook today, the attacks on Amazon, the opioid crisis, the kind of mini tech lash that we're going through right now, and the anger of a great many voters in former manufacturing hubs like Michigan, Pennsylvania, or Wisconsin. All of it stems from the degree to which technology is displacing every aspect of society. And if this is where we are now, just wait until technology really kicks in, until it replaces millions and millions of more jobs and the consequences will trickle down not just to our economy, but to the psychology of millions of Americans and millions of peoples around the world. How will we be affected by all of this? And what can be done, if anything, to remediate the impact? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang is the founder of Venture for America, a nonprofit that places college graduates in startups for two years. He's been the CEO, co-founder, or executive at a number of technology and education companies. He was named a presidential ambassador of global entrepreneurship and listed as one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business. He's a graduate of Columbia Law and Brown University. He's the author of a new book entitled The War on Normal People, the truth about America's disappearing jobs, and why universal basic income is our future. And he's also announced that he's running for president in 2020. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Yang to the program. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great to have you here. Why are we not talking more about the perils that are down the future from automation at this point? We see so much happening now in terms of self-driving cars, self-driving trucks that are coming along down the future, 3 million truck drivers or more that could be displaced in so many areas. Technological displacement is so clearly in our future, and yet we're refusing to have the conversation. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and uh, hopefully we can start having that conversation now, even though it's years and decades overdue. Uh, as you say, truck driving is the most common job in 29 states. There are 3.5 million of them, average age 49, 94% male, average education high school. I was just in Silicon Valley uh, two weeks ago, and they're closing in. They, they believe on uh, trucks that can drive themselves with teleoperators standing by to uh, to take over from some warehouse in Nevada where they just sort of uh, beam in and take over the truck anytime the computer um, uh, gets less confident. And so when that becomes real, not only will the truck drivers be impacted, but the 5 million Americans who serve them in truck stops and motels and diners across the country. And that's just one small part of it. I mean, it even goes on to, to college-educated jobs, things like radiology and lots of other technical specialties that will be potentially replaced. Yeah, the, the categories of labor are routine cognitive and routine non-cognitive. Uh, those are the jobs that are most likely to be automated. So as you say, radiologists, um, it's obviously a very highly educated technical field, but it's also... Um, really just data processing, and no human radiologist can access as much data in terms of the millions of films on record uh, as a computer. And, and so that's the kind of routine cognitive task, along with accounting and uh, bookkeeping and some lawyering, 
that's very likely to become automated in the months to come. Is it your sense that there is a fear on the part of most people about having this conversation and really beginning to look at this? Well, the great thing, Jeff, is that Americans are waking up to it, where a recent poll showed that 70% of Americans believe that technology is going to destroy many more jobs than it creates. And uh, hopefully my book can galvanize a national conversation around this, where uh, when I'm in Silicon Valley and I talk to the experts, the more people know, the more concerned they are. <laughs> I've, I've yet to talk to like a deep expert who's like, yeah, everything will be fine. <laughs> uh, so we need to... Uh, we need to galvanize the American people as fast as possible because, in my opinion, the reason why Donald Trump is our president today is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, places I've worked over the last six years and saw firsthand the impacts of automation. We're in the third or fourth inning of the greatest technological and economic transition in human history, and by the time we get to inning six or seven, uh, it's going to be uh, chaos. One of the things that we hear over and over again is that, you know, sure, jobs will be displaced, but it will create other jobs and other opportunities, and that it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah, it just goes to show how uh, deeply we've internalized sort of classical economic thinking and market logic. If you look at the actual data of the manufacturing workers in Michigan who lost their jobs, 40% of them went on disability and government retraining programs were entirely ineffective. I mean, those are just facts. Anytime you actually dig in. So it's very frustrating when someone says that technology will create jobs and, uh, as it destroys others. That statement is 100% true. The problem is you're going to get rid of 100 high school graduates, let's say, who are driving trucks, and then replace them with five or ten logistics managers in Seattle with college degrees who are trying to, to make things uh, run more efficiently. The jobs are in different places. They're smaller in number, and they require more highly specialized skills. So that, that's the part of the story that people understand after you um, dig in a little bit, because you realize that you're not going to need 3.5 million uh, mechanics for self-driving trucks uh, when the trucks can drive themselves. Of course, when we're sitting with a 4 4.5% unemployment rate, it's even harder to get people to focus on it. Yeah, and I... I I think it's government malpractice and media malpractice to use the headline unemployment number because it doesn't measure uh, underemployed people. It doesn't measure people out of the labor force. Our labor force participation right now is 62.9%, which is a multi-decade low, and it's comparable to the rates in El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. Not to knock those countries, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's not great. It doesn't measure marginally attached workers. Uh, the the headline unemployment rate is just a terribly misleading measurement. When you start looking at rates of underemployment and labor force participation, there's rampant weakness. In the rare instances where this conversation is held, one of the things that comes out of it is this whole notion of universal basic income, and that's really at the heart of, of what you write about in the war on normal people. Talk a little bit about that. Well, universal basic income was a policy that was mainstream in the 60s and 70s. It passed the House of Representatives in 1971, installed in Congress because Democrats wanted a higher floor. It's a policy where every citizen gets a certain amount of money, free and clear, um, regardless of their work status. So in my plan, it's $1,000 a month. And back in the 60s, a thousand economists signed a letter saying this would be a great thing for both the economy and society. Martin Luther King was for it. Richard Nixon was for it. 
and it became this close to, be, to, to becoming law. It's act, it actually is law in one state in the union right now, and that's Alaska, which has a petroleum dividend of between one and two thousand dollars per citizen per year. We just don't hear that much about it because it's it's in Alaska. Uh, a universal basic income is often thought of as a response to automation, because in a society where jobs are harder and harder to come by. Uh, then having enough money to support yourself becomes increasingly vital and sensible. One of the interesting things that you talk about in the war on normal people is not just the economic consequences of this and the economic reality, which I want to talk some more about, but also the psychological impact. Yeah, so, you know, I I really started getting passionate about this in part when I had children. Uh, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, both boys, and... Our first son was such a struggle. I mean, we struggled, really, when he was, you know, three, six, nine months old. And I thought to myself, there are two of us, and we, ha- we have education and resources, and we can do some things. And it was still just kicking our butts <laughs> like, every day. And so uh, thinking about single moms in the U.S., 40% of American children today are born to an unmarried mother, and my wife and I talk about it. it's like, how the heck can you do this alone and then hold down a job uh, and, and try and maybe even have more than one child? I mean, like the, the family dynamics are, are really where the rubber hits the road. And a universal basic income has been shown to uh, improve high school graduation rates. It improves children's personalities where they become more conscientious and agreeable because there's less financial stress in the house. Mental health goes up. The amount of time that young mothers spend with their children goes up. So uh, there is this macroeconomic, and it, it tends to attract a certain sort of like uh, techie guy. But the human impacts are really much more compelling and dramatic uh, when you start trying to figure out how it's going to look in the real world. You talk about it in the context of this $1,000 a month. How did you arrive at that number and, and why that number as opposed to a lower one or a higher one? Well, $1,000 a month is the right level because it brings all Americans to just about the, t- the poverty level, where the poverty level in this country right now is around $12,700. And $1,000 a month is enough to make a real difference in most Americans' lives. 57% of Americans right now can't afford a $500 unexpected bill. So it's going to make a huge difference. But it's not so much that it distorts labor market behavior too much, where if you're, let's say, a waitress making $20,000 right now, and then you're getting another $1,000 a month, uh, are you going to quit your job the next day? Probably not. Um, You're going to instead keep your job, make $32,000 in essence, and then start trying to save a little bit. Uh, So $1,000 a month gets people to the top of the poverty level, Um, It was proposed by a guy named Andy Stern, who's now advising my campaign, who is the head of the largest labor union in the country. Uh, And it was studied by the Roosevelt Institute, which found that $1,000 a month universal basic income would grow the economy by 4.6 million jobs and uh, increase GDP by $2.5 trillion a year in perpetuity. So this was not my plan. This was a plan that others had proposed and studied. Would this be, in your view, means-tested? No, it, it wouldn't, uh, in part because means-testing and ends up introducing both the stigma and administration, uh, and it, it ends up being a year behind in many cases. So 
It would be universal. Any adult between 18 and 64 would receive $1,000 a month, no questions asked. And the reason why, why this would be the best way uh, is in part because of the funding mechanism that I propose, which is a value-added tax. So if you're among the wealthiest members of society, you consume more, you'll end up paying more into the system, and so you're getting $1,000 a month uh, is totally fine because you'll likely be paying more uh, than that um, into the, the system to pay for others. What is the nexus, if any, between this and other welfare and social safety net programs that already exist? Well, we spend $500 billion right now on welfare and income support, uh, and the, the plan would be to allow people who are currently receiving benefits to opt in. Say you're receiving $1,000 in food stamps and housing assistance and other things, and then we say, would you prefer $1,000 cash? No questions asked, no case manager, no paperwork, no nothing. If, obviously, most anyone who's receiving anywhere close to the $1,000 line will uh, opt in for the freedom dividend. Um, but if you prefer your benefits or perhaps you're getting a little bit more uh, than $1,000 in benefits, uh, then you can keep them. And so we would end up replacing a lot of the cumbersome bureaucracy uh, but the goal would be to allow people to opt in because um, people have obviously like very strong um, reliance uh, on existing programs, and we don't want to go and try and make wholesale changes uh, immediately. What are some of the other broader implications that you see this having on the economy and on economic models that, that are very important today? Well, so much of our... Uh, public policy and media coverage supposes an economy that stopped existing a uh, few decades ago. Like we, we pretend that there's still this 1970s model of employment, and that if you graduate from college, you get a good job, you get benefits, uh, you'll be able to buy a home and, and uh, start a family and all that good stuff. Uh, in reality, the underemployment rate for recent college graduates is 44%. Uh, we're up to $1.3 trillion in student loan. And all of the jobs that have been created since 2005 have been uh, contractor jobs and gig economy jobs, in part because employers do not want to pay for health care and other benefits <laughs> for, uh, for employees. So uh, the economy is changing in fundamental ways, in large part because companies that are coming up just don't employ as many people. And when they do employ people, they tend to be small numbers of uh, engineers and people with highly specialized skills. In my book, The War on Normal People, I have a table, and it shows that a company like Kodak employed 145,000 people in the 80s, and Snapchat today employs less than 2,000 people. And you can play that out across industries where the, the companies on the cutting edge today just do not need that many employees, but we pretend that that, that model of employment still exists and we need to adapt to the realities of 2018 and 2020. And in that way, you make the argument for this, for a universal basic income, really as kind of a pro-business, pro-capitalist policy. Oh, it's very pro-growth. I mean, as I said, the Roosevelt Institute projected it would create millions of jobs. And I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs uh, over the last couple of decades uh, as a founder, well, in the last six and a half years as the founder of Venture for America, a universal basic income would be the greatest catalyst to entrepreneurship, new business formation, and creativity that we've ever seen. 
entrepreneurs generally are not scrambling to pay their bills week to week or month to month in the sense that, like, uh, that they need to meet their personal needs. They have their heads up. They're thinking about problems they want to solve in the world, and they're situated such that, such that they can take a risk for a period of months while trying to build a new business. And we're going to put millions of Americans into that uh, frame of mind and also to have a sense of security. Economic security begets innovation, creativity, and new businesses. Where have you seen, it in all the time you've been talking about this and, and, and really promoting this idea, where are you finding pushback and why? You know, the, the main pushback really is a lack of imagination. <laughs> where, where people are like, oh, is this possible? How can we pay for it? We are the richest, most advanced society in the history of man. Our economy is up to $19 trillion. It's grown by $4 trillion in the last 10 years. We're the global reserve currency. We can easily afford $1,000 per citizen per month. When we talk- and the real obstacle I run into is just people getting trapped in the uh, food fights of today and a mindset of scarcity and think that something that should be completely obvious and benefits 85% of Americans from day one is somehow impossible in a democracy. So what we're, we're battling really is inertia and a lack of imagination. Talk about the total cost for this. You estimated it around $2 trillion. Talk about that and, and where it comes from exactly in your view. Sure. So uh, $2 trillion sounds like a lot. Uh, the economy is $19 trillion and the federal budget is around $4 trillion. But the great thing is that the freedom dividend doesn't grow the government at all. It's really a dividend to citizens in the same way that the petroleum dividend in Alaska just distributes the resources uh, to citizens and really keeps it out of the hands of government. So $500 billion of the $2 trillion we are already spending on income support. And so that, that will take 25% of the cost out right there. My plan to pay for it, and we are in a we're in a really precarious position right now because we have an income tax regime that's terrible at harvesting the gains and, and value creation from automation. Who's going to benefit from automation? Large global tech companies that are great at not paying taxes, small technology companies that are often not profitable. What we need to do is we need to shift to a value-added tax uh, the same way as every other industrialized country does it so that when there are the robot trucks and the AI and the software, we're receiving revenue from that. So a value-added tax at half the European level of 10% would generate between seven and $800 billion per year in revenue. So that gets us up to about 65% of the cost of the universal basic income. And then the great thing is that as the economy is going to grow because people have more money to spend, we're going to get 25% of that back in new tax revenue from all the new businesses, from all the consumer spending, the revenue to GDP ratio in the U.S. is about 25%. So if you project that the, gov- that the economy is going to grow by, let's say, one, one and a half to $2 trillion, uh, then you're going to get four or $500 billion back uh, in increased revenue. And then the last part is that we spend about a trillion dollars right now on health care, incarceration, homelessness services, all these things that are going to go down when more Americans can stay functional and stay out of the emergency room and stay out of uh, social services. So we're going to save money that way. Um, the universal basic income will actually end up paying for itself in profound ways, 
What's really expensive is when Americans become dysfunctional and wind up in the system. What happens, in your view, if this technological displacement that we've been talking about continues to happen at the pace that certainly you and I think it will happen, and we do nothing about it? Uh, Jeff, it's great to talk to a kindred spirit in this, because it seems like you've been after this for a long time. <laughs> if, we, if we do nothing, we're going to wind up with science fiction-level dystopian scenes playing out before us in a few short years. The great trucker riots of 2024, uh, the mindset of scarcity and irrationality is going to manifest itself in hatred for other groups. Eventually, there will be uh, virulent anti-tech protests um, because people's communities are about to get blasted out of existence. I mean, one out of tw 12 workers in Nebraska works in trucking. I mean, you, you can imagine how, how that's going to impact many of the states in the interior. And people on the coast in the bubble are somewhat insulated from it, uh, except when this last election came and then, you know, it was a wake-up call to, to many people. Uh, the wake-up calls are just going to get worse and worse over time if we don't get in front of this in a big way. And that requires thinking much more dramatically about new solutions. Do you think that this tech lash that we're seeing now in, in small ways is, is kind of a forerunner of what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, uh, I think that it's uh, going to grow from here um, and that the people who lead in the technology industry uh, and, and other industries, uh, we need to step up and say, look, the system right now showers benefits on a relative handful of companies and individuals, and more and more Americans are feeling left out and left behind because they are left out and left behind. <laughs> it's not like, like there's no, like they're right. So we, we need to start owning uh, our responsibilities as Americans and patriots and say, look, we have plenty of resources. Uh, we just need to start distributing them more fairly and more broadly. Of course, the other counter-argument to this, which uh, I'm sure you hear a lot and, and is out there a lot, is that we're overreacting to all of this, that it is not going to happen as quickly. This isn't coming that soon. Look what happened already with, with one accident, with self-driving cars, and we needn't worry about it. Well, uh, the data is actually going the other direction, um, where if you look, and you cited some of, the, uh, of these social issues earlier uh, in the interview, life expectancy has declined in the U.S. for two straight years, which is almost unheard of in a developed country, in large part because middle-aged uh, Americans are killing themselves in record numbers. And that doesn't include the opiate epidemic, which kills seven Americans every hour. So if you look at what's going on out there, it's very, very bleak right now. So anyone who thinks, hey, it's going to be okay, uh, just not paying attention to the facts. And anyone who cites the Industrial Revolution seems to ignore the fact that there were widespread protests and violence. Mm -hmm. uh, Labor Day was inaugurated in response to a strike that killed dozens of people and caused billions of dollars of damage. Uh, labor unions originated during this period and negotiated and fought for things like the 40-hour work week and universal high school came up. So there are all these social changes during the Industrial Revolution that took place over years out of conflict. And so people who think it's going to be fine this time are really not students of history and are not paying attention to the facts on the ground.
And finally, Andrew, talk a little bit about your uh, wanting to run for president. You've written this book, The War on Normal People. Obviously, these ideas are important ones to get out there. Why run for president, given a crowded field already? Well, if, if I'm an entrepreneur, and I, I want to solve the problems I set out to solve. And here, this problem is national in scope and society-wide in its impact. And so when you think about how you can realistically solve these problems within a five to ten year time frame, a revolution is required, and we need a new president that has the right vision and values and priorities to implement solutions that, while they seem dramatic today, will become mainstream very, very quickly. One of my rules in life is you have to give yourself a chance to win, or you have to give yourself a chance to solve the problem. Everything else I had listed that I could do does not solve the problem, but this will. And I'm happy to say, since declaring my candidacy in February, I've been overwhelmed by the support and contributions uh, and people saying, thank goodness, someone's actually telling the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, so this campaign uh, grows stronger every day. Uh, and like, I'm so glad that I'm running for president because I'm, I'm seeing now much more clearly just how deep the needs are. Let me ask you real quickly before I let you go, how do you see this problem in a global context? Because we've been talking about it very specifically with regards to the U.S., but we know that we live in a global economy, that these problems are going to happen and these technological issues are going to happen all over the world. How do you see this as part of that larger framework? Well, I, I was at a presentation with the head of the World Bank, and he, talked, he, he had a slide that showed the different ratios of jobs in different economies in terms of their being subject to automation. And the, the U.S. is actually in some ways uh, disadvantaged because we're coming off of like a very high base, where in another country where labor is very cheap, the incentive to automate is very cheap. Whereas here, because labor is quite pricey, the incentives to automate are very, very high, and the people, when they lose their truck driving job, getting paid forty-eight or $52,000, their next option is not going to pay them anywhere near that, and that's a very, very steep fall. So in some ways, we are in a worse position than other countries because our labor is more expensive and our costs are higher. Uh, but this is definitely going to be an international phenomenon, and it's going to hit other countries in equally dramatic ways. You see it even in China, where there's a move towards a lot of automation. Even companies like Foxconn are looking at greater automation. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, other countries are pretty ruthless uh, about doing whatever is best for efficiency for the business. And, uh, and so it's not just an American phenomenon. Um, but as you say, I'm focused on this country because I'm an American and uh, we have plenty to work on right here at home. Andrew Yang, the book is The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income is Our Future. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.